So, to, to close the thought, you've all been voluntold that you're doing something this morning. First John, we're going to go to chapter 2, verse 28. So, good morning. Thank you again for coming back. We're really plowing through. I mean, we're almost halfway, quite honestly, about uh, with, our, with our schedule. <clears throat> And you know that John has given us a series of tests by now. We're coming off a a substantial, kind of a deep dive doctrinal test on the spirit of Antichrist from last week. And now we're going to continue on to another test, but now we're going from doctrinal back to a moral test. And as you well know, John, his writing is very, it's not linear, it's more circular. And some people reference it as uh, a series of spirals. So we're spiraling back through a lot of the themes that we've already touched on in different ways. Um, as, as far as approach, today I'm going to be hopefully flying a lot faster and a lot more higher level than, say, last week where we kind of went in the weeds. Uh, and like I said, I'm going to read together once. I'd like us to read together. And then if you have a card, you have, part, you have an exercise as part of that. <clears throat> So, quicker pace today. Um, we have a lot of ground to cover. And thank you in advance for your participation here. And the exercise is hopefully going to help us visually with our, with our context this morning, okay? My objective is threefold. And really, it's the same three uh, sections of Scripture that we're going to tackle. One, two, three. So, my objectives are this. First, I hope that... We become hopeful for the Lord's return. We focus on Christ's return, His second coming. That will be the smallest of our sections. The next, we're going to examine sin relative to Christianity. What is our view of sin? What is our lifestyle based relative to sin? And love our view of love as Christians, our lifestyle in light of being a Christian? What does it mean to love as a Christian? What does sin mean for somebody who is a Christian? And again, looking forward to Christ's return. So are you ready to tally up your cards for me? Let's take our eyes and go to chapter 2, verse 28, and I will read through to the end of chapter 3. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. 
No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let us let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Okay, I'm at verse 11. I'm going to continue on through the rest of our chapter. Are you with me? Okay. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask we receive of him because he keeps his commandments, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. All right, let me pray real quick. Father, your word is uh, something that we can rely on. It's true, it's clear. Thank you for the writing, John. Please, uh, in light of uh, the speaker this morning, uh, please illuminate this scripture to us, and may we learn how to live as Christians, how to test ourselves, and how to have comfort. Uh, It's in your name I pray. Amen. There's just a simplicity of how he writes. It's so direct, and it's just such a benefit to just go and read it together. And I trust you feel the same. So, um... Let's just go in order here, and what I'd like to do is just have you tell me, if you had the word beloved, tell me how many times did you see the word beloved in the text? Two. You had two, okay. Next? <laughs> That's why I Yeah, asked. you were busy. You were pretty okay, busy. including all the uh, pronouns and the spirit and all of that, I have 46 times. <laughs> Uh, that's give or take, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, I was going to say that I skewed my numbers here. Just a second. 
I misled you. So specifically, I'm going to say God 246. Uh, th- this next person was busy too. No. 11. 11. Okay. I've had all the way up to 13, somewhere in there. Next, love? Nine. Nine? Yep. Sin? Fifteen. Fifteen. Abide or remain? Eight. Eight? Yep. Practice? Six. I've had seven, so I'm going to say six to seven. Children? Seven. Seven. Righteous? Seven. Truth? Uh oh. <laughs> I don't know if it's just a translation, but like two to three is what I've had. Oh. What did you have? One or two. Yeah. What two? Exactly. Death. One. Lawlessness. Two. Two. World. Give or take seven. <laughs> well, I, I did when it talked about it. Yeah. I included that. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. I know it was a little different technique there. One of the things that is just important to do when you're reading is just observe and see what stands out, and so much of that is just what words are emphasized. Take a different color here. And this morning important for us to anchor on a couple in particular, right? I'm going to do that right here. Really some heavy hitters in terms of our text. So let that be our backdrop, both figuratively and literally. Section 1 of 3. Section 1 of 3. Hope in the Lord's return. Hebrews, you don't have to turn there. Hebrews 6, the end of chapter 6 says, We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So there is imagery of sailors looking for a place to anchor for safety and refuge. And they do so because we can do so because Jesus rose and lives again. He entered into heaven as our high priest, as our intermediary, our go-between. <laughs> and, his Christ- and his Christians cannot be shaken loose. If you think of last week, how we talked about assurance and perseverance. <clears throat> Christians cling to Jesus to the end. You can cling to Jesus. And we sing uh, that very text sometimes on Sunday mornings. Uh, think if you would how what unbelievers cling to. My wife and I quite commonly ask ourselves, I wonder what our life would be right now if we didn't know the Lord. Amen. What would our relationships be? <clears throat> what would we seek in relationships? What would, where would entertainment lead us? What would we consume to fill those voids? Um, what would feed our selfish desires? You're in 1 John, back up just a little bit to chapter 2, 15 through 17. And let's remind ourselves what is of the world. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, boastful pride of life. Well, in light of that, John 
leads us and pushes us to an eternal focus. And if you remember, it's because we are in the last hour. Christ's return is imminent. And so we need to be eternally focused. So if we go for, <clears throat> excuse me, if we go into our verses, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Verse 20, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, chapter 2, verse 28. And now little children abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink back. I'm going to pull through from last week my favorite description of the word abide. And there's a few different concepts there, like communion and and being continually uh, communing. But I like settle down and dwell. Settle down and dwell. Abide. I know that John's, te- John's probably thinking of his gospel, chapter 15, where Jesus' own language, his own words, telling his disciples to abide in me as I in you. But we have a striking concept here of shrinking back at his coming. That same uh, word, confidence, as opposed to shrinking back, that word of confidence is there in chapter 321, 417, 514, and, and it really means to be outspoken. So that's that's a very interesting way for us to think of that word confidence. It's almost to have freedom of speech, be loud and be uh, vocal of what is true. <clears throat> so the idea here is that we are to abide in him, continue in him, and do so all the more so that you will not be ashamed at his coming. Christians will experience, may experience, divine disapproval at the judgment So I think we can take heed in how we live at the moment of Christ's return even. It should impact how we view sin. But I think the bigger message, the more important message, is that those who do not know Christ will shrink back. They are not ready. They are not prepared to see Christ when he returns. They will shrink back in guilty fashion as they are not abiding in him. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous... You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So this is the first time the idea of new birth or regeneration has been introduced in this uh, book. And now we have the theme that begins here of Christians being made new. And being made new to live righteously. You had that one, Lee, right? Righteous? Righteousness. And they're inseparable. Being made new and living righteously, they are inseparable. 3.1, a familiar passage to us. We know that John talks in contrasts. If we are children of God, we are in a different category than the world. Does anybody have the word lavished in their verse? 3.1? You have that? Becky, can you read your version for us? I don't have that word, but I remember, I remember that word, and I think it's just beautiful. He lavished his love on us. And how loving it is to be children of God. Uh, I can remember just a few weeks ago where Pastor Dave was talking about just the comparison of God versus other deities and how other deities are viewed. And this idea of being children is completely unique <clears throat> versus being totally afraid and 
uh, scared and unapproachable. And we don't sacrifice his holiness, of course, but we're told that we are children of God. And that also kind of goes along with this idea of being born. Children are born. John MacArthur says, Hope introduces life and happiness into this sin-stained and death-filled world. Hope introduces life and happiness. And that's where we're at in verses 2 and 3. We have hope in Christ. The true believer experiences regeneration into new life and experiences inward purification. This idea, the word purification there, we can start to think uh, sanctification. And it really sets us up for our next uh, section of Scripture here because it's talking about purification from sin. The last part of verse 3, everyone who hopes in him hopes in Christ, purifies himself as he is pure. That purifying is a sanctification and a daily battle against sin. So in summary of this first section, a hope in the Lord's return, let's ask ourselves, do you anticipate, do I anticipate Christ's return? And do I do so in confidence? There are times where I'm so consumed with the day, the week, next vacation the planning the just reacting sometimes that as a christian i'm i'm ashamed that sometimes uh just the simplicity of looking for his return with joy that's sometimes absent from my life what about you is it in your mind is it impacting your behavior here of being children of God and it's evident in our scripture here part two of three all right we're doing good part two of three this will be the longer one but I want to focus on a little bit more of the others and this is it Christians don't mix with sin Christians don't mix with sin is sin a big deal (laughs) that's a total understatement go back to chapter two verse one my little children, I am writing these things so that you may not you may not sin. The Bible gives standards of belief and behavior as required tenets of real saving faith. They are this, these, accepting the biblical gospel and a life char- characterized by worthy walk are accurate indicators. Again, indicators that someone is, is made new. When the walk doesn't match the talk, it is right and important to call into question someone's profession of faith. Does anybody have a New King James Version this morning? Would you mind reading chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 6, and then verse 9? Because I want you to listen. You might have a little bit of a different translation. So some of the original has this to say, 3, 6. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Okay. Again, whoever abides in him does not sin. Okay. That's pretty that's a pretty bold statement there. Three nine. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. 
for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. Well, I've read chapter 1, and I think there's an apparent contradiction here on the surface. Let's go back. Chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we what? We deceive ourselves. Or a couple verses later, chapter 10. I'm sorry, uh, verse 10 of chapter 1. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. So we got we to gotta understand this because it's, this is one of these verses in the, the book that needs a little more uh, explanation. And historically, there's been some uh, wrong interpretations. So bear with me. Some would say that this idea is that John's just saying, here's your ideal, here's your um, goal. It's totally impossible to be sanctified but do your best. Well, we know that's not true because one, John doesn't write that way and it goes against the idea of victory over sin that will come out later in this, in this book. Some people will redefine sin saying that you're not committing sin but you're experiencing sin as a victim. We suffer it um, as opposed to maybe doing it. Therefore, we're not violating this. Um, and it does not go against our true uh, regenerate nature. Or sometimes we could recategorize sin that's saying, well, there's majors and there's minors. So what he's talking about here uh, is that, you know, there's mortal sins um, and those ones are the ones that would forfeit your position. Uh, but if you just do the minor sins, then you're compliant here by saying you haven't sinned, which is incorrect. It's wrong. This is probably more likely of what we're familiar with. Some might argue that this is the idea of perfectionism. Meaning that over time, as a Christian, you do come to a point where you actually are sinless in this life. But that drives confusion, and that drives doubt. Um, I know someone in this church who has talked to us uh, specifically about being immersed in this type of teaching in this uh, community of, of a church as a new Christian, and thinking, okay, I know who I am, and I know who you are, and you're saying you we don't sin? Like something's wrong here. Or you go on the opposite spectrum. And we can interpret that uh, your regenerated nature doesn't sin, uh, but it's just your human nature. Uh, so go ahead and indulge. Besides, that's what grace is all about. Um, it just We'll just add grace as needed. Which hopefully will refute that even with a text that's probably already coming into your mind. Wrong, 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 wrong. What is meant both by the immediate context of 1 John chapter 3 and also from uh, just great men who can study the actual languages and bring us uh, right teaching from the, from the language, original languages. What is meant is this, continuous, habit-forming, ongoing behavior. And that's where I want us to draw our eyes to this word right here. Over and over, practicing, practicing, practicing. So the pattern of our life is not going to be associated with sin. Make sense? Does that help us? Because I have to admit, those are very stark verses. Saying that the Christian does not sin. In simplest terms, sin cannot be the lifestyle of a Christian. It's incompatible. Sin cannot be the lifestyle of a Christian. 
I might as well be a paid spokesman for John MacArthur. I uh, found myself pulling from him most uh, in with this text in my own study. And even this week, Lee, and I was looking for Kevin Petrates because he went to a few of us from the church actually went to go see him and hear him t- uh, teach this week in um, Kentucky. And he made a statement that if he has said before, I'm sure he has, obviously, I just had never really resonated with me, but he said um, direction, not perfection. And I thought that was really helpful. Direction. direction. Not perfection. i got to unpack that a little bit. But in terms of sanctification in this life before we're in heaven... It's direction. Where is your life? What's the pattern? Is it associated with faith, love, and obedience? As we see from John. Because we will not have perfection. Does that make sense? Is that helpful? Apparently it's more helpful to me than you. (laughs) Direction, not perfection. And I would I want us to understand too, where's my orange? That there is a link. To that practice, and we rely on God for that. Three, four. Chapter uh, chapter three, verse four, lawlessness. This idea of lawlessness, well that's opposed to God's law. Versus obedience and being willing to follow his commands. Another way of thinking of lawlessness is the word wickedness. And the reason I want to, I, the reason I think it's important to think of in terms of wickedness is that idea is linked right back to the idea of the spirit of Antichrist from last week in chapter 2. The spirit of Antichrist has a casual view, a compromised view of sin. Here again in verse. Five, you know that he appeared to take away sins. This is the incarnation, the perfect example. So we see perfection. That's the incarnation, perfect example of life in the flesh lived by Jesus. Verse 5, he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. The seriousness of sin is magnified in the fact that Jesus the God-man had to come to eradicate it. That's a pretty powerful statement. The fact that even God himself had to take on flesh to remedy this, this penalty of sin shows how serious it is. I told you we're flying. We're moving quick. This is good. Verse 6, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Uh, this was the passage, Carol, that you read for us. The point here is simple and it's very straightforward. Sin is a product of ignorance and blindness towards God. Sin can never come out of seeing and knowing God. It can never be part of the experience of abiding in Christ. If we are abiding and remaining in Christ, okay, it's the antithesis of living in sin.
When we're confronted with the reality of Jesus, we are confronted with perfect holiness and the opposite of sin. And again, here in chapter, I'm sorry, verse uh, 6, no one who keeps on sinning has ever, ever seen him or known him. So most versions have helped clarify the idea of our pattern of sin because it says keeps on sinning, right? And this is directly linked, as I said, back to verse 3, because our hope is in he who purifies. So he sovereignly sanctifies uh, sanctifies us. God's sovereignty is involved in our growth. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Deception, this is the tool of the Antichrist spirit of false teaching. So our takeaway here, it's dangerous to blend sin and righteousness. You're saying, blend sin and righteousness? How would I ever do that? Well, here it is, justifying in our minds or making excuses to appease our old sin nature's desires. I can give in here. I can yield there. This is the new nature that's on display. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. This is heavy language. And our takeaway here is sin, at any level, is satanic. That's heavy language. And I don't always view sin that way. Sin, at any level, is satanic. Joining in sin opposes Christ. And the irony here is that, as we see in verse 8, It's Christ who came to put an end to the devil. Why would we join in him? He came to put an end to sin. Three verse nine. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Again, repeated themes so far, but said another way, a child partakes of the nature of the parent. In contrast, if you had a totally sinless parent begetting a totally sinful child, that's incompatible. It doesn't make sense. Whose uh, version has the word seed in verse 9? God's seed abides in him. Okay? That speaks of regeneration, new birth, new man, new nature, and the Holy Spirit being our, our, our seal. Verse 10, by this it is evident who are children of God. It's evident, it's manifest, it's clear. There should be a, thankfully and helpfully, a contrast to the sinful world. Your life, my life, should be plainly seen as one of a Christian. And how? It's the pattern of our behavior. Not perfection. It's the pattern of our behavior. You guys with me? So that ends section two of three. Here's our summary and application. I want to spend a little time here. Let's go to Romans six. I think you might have already been thinking this way. And it's so good to read these scriptures. So Romans chapter six. Thank you in advance for bearing with us as we do so much reading here. It's hard to know when to cut off on this chapter, so let's just start in. Here, Paul summarizes this new nature, freedom from sin, 
in this monumental passage. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Again, looking forward to his return. We know that our old self, being crucified, with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so we'd no longer be enslaved to sin let's just jump to 12 let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness but present yourselves to God as those who have been bought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. And we'll end here on verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. <clears throat> Huge passage. We can't invalidate grace, but we have victory over sin because we're made new. But the next chapter, chapter 7 of Romans, go to verse 15. You know this well. We still have the struggle, right? And Paul... Uh, another monumental passage, right? Uh, tells us about the conflict of living with the old nature. Romans 7, verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Uh, how about 19? For I do not do the good I want but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Skip ahead to verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I still serve the law of sin. So that struggle is ongoing, but we have victory over sin. And the believer, the direction of the believer's life, cannot be that of a pattern of sin. Let's go to Psalm 1. Psalm chapter 1. Dave Ingersoll can quote Romans 6, and I know that uh, Bill White can quote Psalm 1. They could do that in their sleep. <laughs> This is familiar to us. It's very likely David. He shows the similar contrast between the godly and the ungodly. Again, we know that John, when he writes, is not in the middle ground. He's on one side or the other. And he's very straightforward. Uh, this psalm is the same. It shows that there are the godly and the ungodly. It also, very much like First John, highlights the importance and recognition of righteousness. God knows the righteous. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight, it's in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree 
planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment nor sinners in the congregation of righteousness. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You might know this uh, illustration or this uh, teaching from Psalm 1, but you have a pattern. Somebody walking, and then they're slowed down in the standing, and then they're sitting. And so the progression of sin and temptation that you get in like, James chapter 1 is evident here. So I love this quote from William Bloomer. A man's walk is the course of his life. When the tenor of one's ways is that of the wicked, he is wicked. Like Enoch, all the righteous walk with God. The counsel of the wicked is not merely his advice, but his aims, his maxims, his principles, his practices. In all these, saints and sinners are unlike. The righteous hates the thought of sin, and so walks not with the impious. Awesome. So we have to pause, we have to ask ourselves in self-reflection, what sin today is endangering the pattern of my life? What sin today is endangering the pattern of your life, of your Christian life? Part three of three, Christian love. Back to First John. I know I'm moving fast. You guys hanging in there? <laughs> Chapter three, verse. Uh, where are we? We're at ten B. 10b. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not, is not of God, but here it is, and he starts to pivot. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. So Christian love. Behavior is linked to brotherly love. Guy Woods says that this is going from the spiritual to the social. I think that's really cool. Some of my... Must be, I must be very slow because my favorite quotes are ones that are just like a couple, ver- a couple words. <laughs> Spiritual to the social. Uh, we're getting very practical here, as John tends to be. Verse 11, for this is the message you have heard from the beginning. What he means by the beginning, uh, this isn't going back to Genesis. This is the beginning of whoever's uh, regenerative, regenerated state. So... For you, when you became a Christian, that is your beginning, and you had to know the fundamental principles to be saved. So that is what you were taught at the beginning, the beginning of your salvation. And what is love? Verse 12, well, we're told what it's not. He starts by telling us what love is not. Christian love is not jealousy leading to hatred leading to murder. And when I don't know about you, but when you hear that word murder, you should be thinking about... Uh, Matthew 5, right? And the fact that that's in our hearts. The Sermon on the Mount. Jealousy 
leading to hatred, learning, leading to murder. That's what love is not. Verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. That's interesting. It almost feels like it doesn't fit, but it does. Because Jesus reminded his disciples, the world's going to hate me first. He says that in John 15. Well, what's being cycled back through here is the fact that there's two natures. We're part of Christ. Therefore, we incur, incur that same hatred. It's hatred among Christians that should be the outlier. Okay? So this is a challenge for us to not have hatred be among us. Verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. This is conversion talk. Uh, it could be the we there could be the apostles. I think we could also safely say it's Christians. For we have passed out of death into life. And again, it's coming off the heels of a comparison of those who are of the devil versus those who are of the God who are of God. Whoever does not love abides in death. Abiding in death, that's unregenerated. You should think Ephesians 2, spiritually dead. And if we're staying there on verse 14, we should ask ourselves, is this the cause of salvation? Is brotherly love what brings us salvation? No. No, no, no. This is a result. This is one of those human tests that we can apply to ourselves. Right? There are some good things that could be illustrated as results, but he chooses love. It's not meeting on Sunday. It's not uh, obedience in baptism. And it's not tithing. What's, it, what's illustrated here and what's elevated is love because it's elevated elsewhere in Scripture because out of love flows all these others. Verse 15, I know we're moving. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life. And here it is, abiding in him. So the key word here is abiding. This could cause confusion if we don't think through this verse appropriately. We know that murder can be in our hearts. And we know that Christians can have murderous thoughts. You know, Christians can murder. <laughs> so where's the contradiction here? It's the word abiding. Again, this is not possession of eternal life, but acting righteously as a pattern of our life. Can a Christian hate his brother? Yes. And to do so is to not be in fellowship with God. Does that make sense? Are we clear? I think what, what really is the point is you said acting. Thank you. Yep. Abiding and remaining in practice. Those are our, those are our anchors in today's text. John Wolford says, Hate, unfortunately, is not confined to unsaved people. Verse 16. In stark, stark contrast, we have the idea of the illustration of sacrificial love. And we know this is perfectly illustrated, of course, in Christ's death. But if anyone, in verse 17, has the world's goods and sees his brother in need... It might not be to the extent of self-sacrifice, but we have opportunity to act out materially and very practically. And so the Christian's pity and the Christian's emotional concern and affectionate sympathy should be on display. 
for, for, for those in need. I like verse 18. <laughs> Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So back it up. It's easy to say these things. Let's let our actions do the, do the talking. <coughs> I had planned ahead because I anticipated this moment where I look and I have no chance to finish our text. I have my line here that says, cut and go down. And that's okay. Okay, that's okay. I would like us to go to chapter 15 of the Gospel of John. John 15. I think this, what we've been reading today is so straightforward that a lot of the application, a lot of the takeaway is just innate with reading it. And so it's true with Jesus' words here, which you know are ringing in John's ears as he writes the epistle. Let's go to verse 9, please. John 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, so have I loved you. Here it is, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I'd like us to go through verse 14. So verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another. By the way, we would have seen it if we had continued in First John. The commandment is singular. One commandment, and linked in that one commandment is love and obedience, a love and faith leading to obedience. Greater love has no one than this, no one than this that uh, someone lay down his life for his friends. Here it is. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So, in closing, again, thank you. I know we've flown over everything. How do you, how do I, how do we pass this test? Are we loving to fellow believers? Are we loving towards fellow believers? We could have spent a lot of time talking about what that looks like practically. I think some of that is just inherent. Um, Without love towards others, we are not abiding. And at worst, we may not be in Christ. That's the harsh reality, but the test that 1 John, that the book of 1 John is telling us. If we don't have love, we are not abiding. If we have sin in our lives as the pattern, dominant trait of our life, we are not abiding, and at worst, we may not be in Christ. Let me close this quickly in prayer. We'll be done. Father, your word is, again, something that is true, and how amazing that we could anchor on that as uh, those sailors did in the example Hebrews, we can we can anchor on your word, and when everything's swirling around and there's just just a sinful uh, spirit of antichrist all around. Uh, thank you for the truth that is in Scripture for us. These tests may they bring about assurance. May we abide in you. May we live out what we say is true. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.